Let me tell you what my deep research and basically vision is. I hope there's Bigfoot. I don't think there is. I'm not telling you nothing. <laughs> the aliens won't let it happen. <laughs> Happening now, breaking. Bernie Sanders is a Bears beats Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> what are the tips? Give me some tips on how to work with Wes Anderson. Um, be ready to speak very fast and very <laughs> clearly because that's definitely one key thing. Until you and six kids you barely know in wet bathing suits have surrounded nine chimpanzees outside of a Wendy's, you probably really don't know yourself, okay? Yep. And we back. Hello and welcome. You're listening to your new favorite podcast and the best in political sports and paranormal news coverage. I'm your host, Wes Anderson, and this is In the Shed. This is episode 23, so whether you're coming back for more or finding us for the first time this week, hey, thanks for tuning in. It is bright and early Friday morning, September the 10th, and I'm in a shed in the backyard of my home in Alabama, all so I can hang out with you tools and talk about the latest headlines, stories, and rumors in the world of politics, sports, and the paranormal. So, uh, it's a big day. It's a big day for our family. Right out the gate, I gotta let you know. Today, today is a banner day in the Anderson household. Um, because today, our eldest, my five-year-old daughter, is the star of a parade. That's right, my babies. My five-year-old is in a parade at 9 a.m. Central Standard Time at her elementary school as the letter Q. It's the alphabet parade. Uh, They got a marching band, and every kindergartner was assigned a letter of the alphabet. I guess they have multiple kindergartners. They're the same letter because there's not just 26 kindergartners. There's like 26 kids in her class, but... They were all assigned a letter of the alphabet, and they had a uh, paper bag, like from the grocery store, paper or plastic, they chose paper, to decorate um, with things that start with your letter. And they gave my baby the letter Q. They gave her the letter Q. And the conversation between me and my spouse, my better half, uh, was what are we going to decorate this vest with? This jacket for the parade that starts with the letter Q. And uh, your boy, your boy wanted to go with, uh, <laughs> I was trying to convince her to have a QAnon themed, a QAnon themed <laughs> vest. Uh, put a big letter Q with a question mark and um, maybe JFK Jr. on there and uh, a picture of a very definitive looking Donald Trump and um, make a little uh, QAnon themed vest and wear in the alphabet parade at the elementary school. And my idea was vetoed. So um, my baby was the star with her her vest and had like a a queen and a quarter and a quail and um, a quilt, I think, something else too. Uh, but no QAnon. <laughs> you imagine if my daughter showed up to the school with a QAnon themed 
paper bag vest for her parade. And don't forget now, my babies, I'm in I'm in Alabama, okay? It would have been at least two of them teachers that would be like, that's right, baby girl, you speak that truth. <laughs> Uh, we don't get to come watch the parade though. Um, COVID, we gotta. It's gonna be live streamed on Facebook Live, so uh, I gotta get up out here and uh, watch, watch the letter Q come by and be like, uh, "That's my baby in the Q themed paper bag vest." So, yeah, it's a big day. It's a big day. I'm proud of her though. She did a really good job making it. She did a great job decorating it, and uh, she was excited about it, so I'm excited for her, too. Being a parent is fun, man. It's fun. Let's see. Let's see. What else is happening? What else is going on? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I got to tell you about this. Um, so it wasn't on my In the Shed with Wes uh, Twitter, Twitter account. It was my personal one, which I haven't actually even been on very much lately because I've been trying to build the community over on our uh, on our show's Twitter account. But I was on my personal one, and uh, I put out a tweet here a week or so ago about the season finale of a show that I really enjoy. Uh, it's a show you may have heard about. It's called Dave. It's a show called Dave. It comes on FXX. It's a show starring rapper Lil Dicky, who I am a fan of. The man has an incredible ability uh, when it comes to wordplay and uh, rhyme scheme and switching up his cadence mid-flow. Um, but hey, he's a pretty good actor as well. Now, this is not a show for children. I do not recommend this show for your kids. Uh, humor is a little too much and inappropriate at times, but it's very well written. It's very well acted. And uh, it's just a show that it's a comedy. It's an over-the-top comedy. But they actually address serious issues and emotional issues um, in a tender-hearted way, in a very real and personable way as well. Things like watching your parents get older, uh, things like being a good friend, things like mental health uh, awareness. And I found the last episode to be especially touching. Um, it was inspiring, but it it was touching. I, I don't want to give it away, season two finale, but um, if you watch the show, you know what I'm talking about. That last scene, uh, Dave came through for his buddy in a way that was uh, really cool and really neat, and it, it uh, I just thought I thought it was really well done, and so I put up a tweet about it, and I was like, "Hey, this show is a really good show. It is so well done, and uh, the last episode of the season was really moving, and wouldn't you know it." If Lil Dicky didn't like my tweet. And Gator too. Lil Dicky and Gator. They both liked my tweet. Um, and in fact, I was like, man, maybe I should pu push my luck a little bit. Get one of them on the show. Mention the podcast. Drop a link. Take a swing. You know, you never know. Might swing and miss, but you don't know unless you swing. I'm not watching the strike go by. I ain't doing that right there. I'm going to take my shot every time. I might miss, but I'm ready and I'm open. So your boy took his shot. And I mentioned... 10 minutes of their time to come on the podcast. And Gator liked that tweet too. So, I'm not saying, but I'm just saying. I'm saying there's a chance. So you're saying there's a chance. That's what I'm saying. I'm saying Lil Dicky and or Gator might be on this podcast one day. We might get them in the shed, my tools. How cool would that be? That would be awesome. That would be our biggest show yet. Breaking records. A man can dream. A man can dream. So I also got to tell you this. This is a little bit embarrassing. 
I discovered something about myself at age 31 that I did not know before, and it's something that I probably should know because it's not exactly revelatory or um, surprising. It's just something that I had never tried, didn't know about myself, and I found it out recently. Um, I like a BLT. I don't think there's just like a basic go-to sandwich that is better than a BLT. The way the bacon, the lettuce, and the tomato work together, especially if you have that tomato sliced properly with a little bit of salt and pepper on it and the toasted bread, that sandwich, as the kids say, that, that sandwich a bop. It slaps. It go hard. I don't even know if any of those things are even said by kids anymore. Uh, but I heard kids say that before, though. And uh, I'm hip. I'm hip. I didn't know I liked a BLT. I've never had a BLT until I was 31 years old. Um, a week or so ago, we were in between groceries. I ain't had nothing to eat. I was in the cabinets. I was searching. I was like, man, we got like a few pieces of bacon, but not enough for a meal. We got some bread, but no sandwich meat. And then I seen the tomato. And it looked inviting. And I was like, hmm, I'm going to try and make a BLT. And dang, if that ain't a good sandwich. <laughs> That's my go-to now. I think in the last three weeks or two weeks, however long it's been, I, I've i probably eaten more BLTs than like the rest of the country combined. Like that's That's been my go-to lunch. I make two of them bad boys to eat them, and uh, it's good. And you're like, yeah, dude, BLTs are a good thing. I didn't know. I did, I'm, 30, I'm 31 years old. I had never had a bacon, lettuce, tomato sandwich before. Uh, don't put mayonnaise on it. I don't do that. I'm not a mayonnaise fan. I find mayonnaise to be disgusting. You like it, that's okay. That's your prerogative as a free country. Your boy not coming near some mayonnaise. But I like the bacon, the lettuce, and the tomato. And that's a good sandwich. And it's embarrassing to admit that to you, but you and my shed, we hanging out. I'm going to keep it a buck with you. I'm going to keep you real. That's what I got going on in my life this week, y'all. That's what I've been up to. Getting ready for this alphabet parade. Having tweets liked by Lil Dicky and Gata, and eating some BLT sandwiches. Your boy living a life. Your boy living a life. All right, enough of that. Let's get to some comments and corrections from last week's show. Keystone 217, Hanobia 196, Townsend 111. We continue to grow our community on Twitter. You can follow us there at In the Shed 4. That's the words In the Shed and the number 4. But did you know that you can now follow the show on YouTube as well? You can. We now have an In the Shed with Wes Anderson YouTube channel, same name as the show, where you can find all episodes of the show. It's a great way to share the show with your friends and your family. And it's a brand new channel, so we only have like four subscribers. So help us out. Go to YouTube, look up our channel, and hit the subscribe button. We would greatly appreciate it. And uh, I say we, I guess I'm using we as in the show, but um, it's it's just me, shouty. I'm, I'm in the shed with a 50-foot extension cord. I am the the host, the producer, the all them things. Uh, we are brought to you by no one. In the Shed with Wes Anderson is brought to you by absolutely no one. It's just me. But I got a squad. We, we roll deep into India. And uh, we rising on the charts, man, so... Help us out. Go over there and subscribe. We would appreciate it. We would also appreciate it if you would take just a minute of your time, a fraction of your day, to take out your phone, 
open the Apple Podcast app, look up our show, click on it, and leave us a five-star review. Our little show is steadily growing thanks to you, our tools, our listeners, but we only have four reviews on Apple Podcasts. We would like to have many more as those reviews influence the algorithms that affect our rankings, our positioning, and with more reviews, we can get our show in front of the ears of more listeners. We continue to grow in India, France, and Denmark this week. Shout out to my friend Nick Spina of Canton, Ohio, one of my very best friends from middle school. He's been tuning into the show. Glad to have you on board, Nick. And I'm sorry about that prank that I pulled in in eighth grade. Um, maybe we can be maybe we can tell that story on the show one day with your permission, of course. Um, it was quite the prank, and I still sometimes reflect on it and think that was probably not a good choice. <laughs> Glad to have you listening, Nick. Hope your family's well, bud. On our last episode, I shared about my son Malachi fracturing his elbow. I'm happy to report that yesterday, little man got out of his cast. X-rays were good. Everything's healing just as it should, so we're happy about that. On our last show, we talked about the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan. Since our last group of soldiers flew out, there have been reports of Christians being martyred, women being assaulted for protests, and executions of those in the LGBTQ plus community by the Taliban. There are still American citizens and allies there, and we pray that they are able to get safely home. On last week's show, I unveiled our In the Shed preseason top 25 college football poll, It had a few mistakes, and we will address those more in our sports segment, so stay tuned for that. And on our last episode, we talked about the Minnesota Iceman. After the show, we put up a poll on Twitter asking if you believe the Minnesota Iceman was real or not, and 79% of you responded that you believe it was a hoax. So I guess the case is closed there. That's all the comments and corrections for this week. We've got a great show for you today, but first, let's get to some listener emails. Our first email comes to us from Randy from Connecticut, who writes, Wes, I too am glad that we are out of Afghanistan. The longevity of the war was hard to fathom. Far too many lives were lost, and for what, I'm not sure. I do give President Biden credit for bringing our troops home, but I also fault his administration for the level of chaos and lack of precision in executing a plan. Your analysis was spot on. Thank you for listening to the show. Thank you for the email, Randy. Um, Yeah, I don't have much more to say about it. I think I said it all last week. I'm glad that our troops are home. That war should have ended a long time ago. It was kept going for reasons that escape me, and the ones that I can pinpoint aren't good ones. Endless war does not benefit anyone. Um, But I also think that the way in which we pulled out was problematic and uh, created some dominoes um, that resulted in some harm being done to those that we care about and those who helped us out. And uh, I'm not sure that Afghanistan is in too much of a better place now uh, than when we arrived 20 years ago. And that that is incredibly unfortunate. So I think history will look well upon Biden for pulling our troops out and bringing us home. I do give him credit, but the way in which it happened um, will always appear uh, less than stellar. And uh, in the grand scope of things, um, the war in Afghanistan will, will be remembered a lot like Vietnam. And uh, that is not a positive thing for anyone, anyone involved, anyone who who held any public office 
during these 20 years. They're all at fault. Um, They all have across the bear. Our next email comes to us from Emily from St. Louis, Missouri, who writes, Wes, I accidentally found your show after stumbling across your Twitter feed. I've never heard anything like it, such an odd combination of subjects. I usually listen to the politics, fast forward through the sports, and then listen to the paranormal segment. I'm loving it. Keep up the good work. Hey, thank you very much, Emily. I appreciate you listening. Yeah, our show is a different one. It's a news show. I tell people all the time, what we do is is the news. Uh, we just come from a different perspective. We don't just cover what's happening in the world. We don't just cover politics. We do. Uh, we cover some local stories, national and international, in the political sphere. But we also talk about sports because I love sports, and we talk about the paranormal. We try to kind of have a snapshot of what's going on in all aspects of life, and we have a little something for everybody. I know some folks just tune in for the sports. I know some folks that fast forward right to the end and listen to the paranormal news segment. We got something for everybody. And I've even had a couple emails lately that say I don't like sports, but I like listening to you talk about sports, and I appreciate that too. Um, Those emails make me feel good, unlike a couple weeks ago when all of them... (laughs) All of them were terribly, terribly negative. Thank you for listening, Emily. I'm glad that you have joined us here on In the Shed. And finally, James from Seattle writes, Wes, I'm a Washington Husky football fan. I was so excited that you ranked them 14th in the country. (laughs) Then they lost to an FCS school. Thanks. Don't root for my team anymore, please. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry about that. Um... I'm sorry about that, James. Uh, if if I am to blame, if I if I need to be scapegoated so you feel better, if I put some type of, of jinx or hoax on your team by ranking them so high in my poll, I apologize. I believed in your Washington Huskies, and they let me down. I, I ranked them 14th in the country, and they lost to an FCS school. So uh, I share in your pain. I did not see that coming. I thought that they would be one of the two best teams in the Pac-12, and uh, after week one, that looks like one of my biggest whiffs. And we'll talk about that more when we get to the sports. That's all the listener emails this week. If you have any thoughts that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwes at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. All right, let's switch to this. Let's get to the news in the world of politics. And let's hit the headlines. From Breitbart, it's here. Joe goes for vax mandate. Justice Department sues Texas over state's new abortion law, writes Newsmax. Joe Biden does U-turn on vaccine mandates two months after declaring independence from COVID-19, according to Newsweek. Longtime ESPN reporter won't be on sidelines due to vaccination status, says USA Today. And finally, taxing the rich is popular, but it makes Democratic lawmakers nervous. And that is according to Huff Post. Our first story in the world of politics, South Dakota AG dodges jail and fatal crash enraging victims' family. South Dakota Attorney General Jason Ravensborg pleaded no contest Thursday to misdemeanor charges in a car crash last year that killed a pedestrian who he said he initially thought was a deer. Ravensborg, 45, will avoid jail time after pleading no contest to operating a motor vehicle while using an electronic device and driving outside of his lane in the September crash that killed Joseph Beaver, 55, along a rural highway, the Sioux Falls Argus leader reported. Prosecutors dropped a third charge of careless driving. Ravensborg was fined $500 by a judge on each count, 
and was also ordered to pay more than $3,000 to cover costs associated with securing the scene of the fatal wreck the newspaper reported. Judge John Brown said he didn't think a jail sentence was appropriate in the case. He also denied a request by Beaver's family that Ravensborg cover the cost of the late man's funeral. Brown initially granted the family's request that the Attorney General perform public service for the next five years near the date of Beaver's death, but put the order on hold after an objection from Ravensborg's attorney. Beaver's widow, Jenny Beaver, said Ravensborg has taken away my will to live while telling Brown that she disagreed with his decision of no jail time in the case. Both charges carry sentences of up to 30 days in jail and $500 fines. Joseph Beaver's widow, Jenny Beaver, said if this was any normal person that did this, they would already be in jail. If this was any normal person that did this, they would already be in jail, Jenny Beaver said. What he did was break his own law. His law states do not use your phone, and what did he do? He used his phone and ended up killing my husband. Jenny Beaver intends to file a wrongful death lawsuit against Ravensborg in civil court, the newspaper reported. Beaver's sister Jane Beaver accused the AG of showing a lack of remorse and callousness in the aftermath of the fatal wreck. We do not feel a couple of fines is adequate for killing a man, Jane Beaver said Thursday. Our brother lay in a ditch for 12 hours. This is inexcusable. Ravensborg's attorney, Tim Wrench, said the AG didn't want this fella to die, while insisting the fatal crash was accidental. Accidents happen. People die, Wrench said. Nobody blames the family for disliking greatly the person who is involved. Wrench said it was completely false that Ravensborg had to have known he hit a man claiming he left the scene without malicious intent and has steadfastly maintained his innocence. Ravensborg, who did not attend Thursday's hearing, told investigators following the crash in his 2011 Ford Taurus that he thought he hit a deer. He said he didn't realize that he hit a person until he returned to the crash scene the following day and found Beaver's body. The judge in Jason Ravensborg's case, John Brown, said that he didn't think a jail sentence was appropriate. I didn't see him, Ravensborg said. I did not see anything. I did not know it was a human until the next day. A blood sample taken about 15 hours later showed no alcohol in Ravensborg's system. Investigators have said that the AG, a Republican elected in 2018, was distracted when he slammed into Beaver as the man walked along the shoulder of U.S. Highway 14 west of Highmore on September 12th. Ravensborg of Pierre was returning home after attending a GOP fundraiser in Redfield. Prosecutors have said that he was on his phone roughly one minute prior to the crash, while records indicate the device was locked at the moment of impact. The embattled AG has resisted calls to resign, and the South Dakota House of Representatives voted in March to suspend two articles of impeachment against the state's top law official until the outcome of his criminal case. Ravensborg's spokesperson said in February that he has no plans to step down. <sighs> Yeah, man. We've been covering this story probably probably as thoroughly or as well as anyone not located in the state of South Dakota. Because we've been on this story since the very beginning. And we followed up on it three or four times already. And I hate that on this, our 23rd episode, we're talking about it again and what we're having to say is that Jason Ravensborg is going to get away with killing a man scot-free. Scot-free. Because unquestionably, that is exactly what is happening in this case. And it's a shame. It's a sham. It's a shame. It's not acceptable. And I'm sorry for Mr. Beaver's family. And it's hard for me to understand how 
how this story concludes like this, where the top law enforcement official in a state is on his phone, driving distractedly, veers over into the shoulder of the road, hitting a man and killing him, doesn't get charged with any felonies, has one charge dropped, is able to reach a plea deal in which he pays $1,000 in fines and reimburses the city for the cost of securing the scene, and then he walks away. He very well may keep his job. What job in America is there where you cannot pay attention to what you are doing and kill someone, and not only do you not go to jail, but you don't even lose your job? It's a joke. It's asinine. Review the facts of the case. The man's glasses were in your front seat. His head went through your windshield, partner. Like, A, you claimed that you didn't even know that it was a person. His head went through your windshield. His glasses came off. His face wound up in your front seat. His blood alcohol level was not tested for 15 hours. For some unknown reason, he was allowed to return the next day and be a part of a search party with the local sheriff in which the attorney general himself was the one to find Mr. Beaver's body. But he didn't know. He, he had, it was, it's all a coincidence. He had no idea. Those glasses just happened to come off. It happened so, he, he thought it was a deer, but he was able to find the body, wasn't he? I mean, have you ever seen an episode of Matlock? Do you watch CSI? Have you ever seen Law and Order? If the man returns to the scene the next day and happens to be the one to find the body, don't you think that that's a little bit fishy? Shouldn't that raise some red flags? What are we doing, prosecutors? Why are you reaching a plea deal when this is the uh, top law enforcement official in the state? What kind of example does that set that you're holding everybody else to one standard and this man to another? Because of the title in front of his name. Joe Beaver lost his life. This man ain't even show any remorse. I read one public statement that was three sentences long that mentioned the fact that he was sorry Mr. Beaver died. And the rest of it was just talking about how it was accidental, how he didn't know, blah, 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 blah. We shared with you a few weeks ago how he came out and tried to disparage this man. He paid off one of his cousins to say that he had told him that he wanted to commit suicide by throwing himself in front of a car. His attorney worked hard to disparage this man based on his mental health struggle and get medications that he was taking admitted into the court as evidence. As though just because this man is depressed or just because he's on mood stabilizers or is taking medicine that that somehow, what, made Mr. Ravensborg get on his cell phone while he was driving home from a political fundraiser? Made him swerve off the road and hit Mr. Beaver? Made him pretend that he thought it was a deer even though there was a pair of glasses sitting in his front seat? That he just drove home and came back the next day with the local sheriff and was able to find the body himself? It's despicable. And even the comments in this story from this man's attorney. He said the AG didn't want this fella to die. Accidents happen. People die. Yeah. Sometimes accidents do happen and people do die, but usually the people who are responsible are held accountable, Mr. Attorney. But not your client, because your client has the letters A.G. in front of his name. I don't think that Mr. Ravensborg wanted Joe Beaver to die, 
But the evidence bears out the fact that his actions and his decisions directly led to Mr. Beaver losing his life. And for that, Mr. Ravensborg should lose some portions of his life as well. Namely, his job as a law enforcement officer, the top one in the state. And for a portion of time, his freedom. The man should be in jail. He's a criminal. He did something wrong. He didn't own up to it. He tried to cover it up. And he's been, he's been rewarded. The actions of the judge in this case are equally offensive. To say that he doesn't think that a jail sentence is appropriate. To rule against having Mr. Ravensborg pay for Mr. Beaver's funeral. Are, are you kidding me? The man wouldn't be having a funeral if it wasn't for Mr. Ravensborg. He's responsible for his death, but he's not responsible for paying for his funeral. And then to take back what he had originally decided and to decide that the AG doesn't even have to do any public service. Why would he? Why would he serve the public? Why would he do anything to protect or serve us? South Dakota. I've heard this mentioned one time on national media as an aside. This should be a big story. This man should be removed from office. We've been covering it on In the Shed with Wes. I was hoping, I was hoping beyond hope that justice would be done for Mr. Beaver in this case. And I'm sorry to say that it hasn't been. Our next story in the world of politics, Libertarian Party of Alabama sues state for discrimination against third parties. The Libertarian Party of Alabama has sued the state claiming they discriminate against third parties trying to get ballot access. According to the Alabama Political Reporter, the federal lawsuit was filed Thursday against Alabama Secretary of State John Merrill. For both the Republican and Democratic parties, obtaining a list of registered voters is free. For other parties, the cost is one cent per name, which Alabama Political Reporter calculates comes out to about $34,000, plus an additional $850 fee if a credit card is used. The lawsuit reads, Having a copy of Alabama's statewide voter registration list provides a distinct advantage to any political party trying to obtain access to the ballot in Alabama and trying to transmit its political message to Alabama voters in order to obtain their support for ballot access, increase their ability to associate with others who share their political philosophy and goals, and ultimately to obtain additional votes. It continues saying the Alabama law unconstitutionally discriminates between major political parties and minor political parties in an effort to, and with the direct effect of creating obstacles which make it more difficult for a minor political party like the LPA to establish itself and grow, garner support, gain access to the ballot in Alabama, and obtain votes in order to grow and have its members and followers hold public office effectively. In addition to needing more than 50,000 signatures to get on the ballot, the lawsuit says that this is just one more obstacle Alabama places in the way of minor parties to try and prevent them from growing and gaining access to the ballot. Ballot access barriers have been ruled unconstitutional in both Michigan and Georgia, according to the Alabama Political Reporter, decisions which give Alabama libertarians hope for success in federal court. Currently, libertarian candidates have to run on write-in campaigns. Ron Bishop ran against Roy Moore and Doug Jones in 2017. The two choices that we have now, they don't conform to what I think America needs to be, Bishop told AL.com. I'm hoping that we can give voters a third option. In Alabama, nearly two-thirds of voters cast straight-party tickets. Not your boy. I am not a Republican. I am not a Democrat. I will vote for whoever presents my values and the values that our country was founded upon. 
In the 2018 election, about 1.1 of the 1.7 million ballots cast were straight-ticket votes, in which voters checked one box to vote for every candidate one party ran. In some cases, a third-party candidate can split the vote from a major party's base, clearing the way for their opponent to win. The Libertarian Party is the third-largest party in the U.S., according to the Libertarian Party of Alabama. They believe the answer to America's political problems is the same commitment to freedom that earned America its greatness, a free market economy, and the abundance of prosperity it brings, a dedication to civil liberties and personal freedom, and a foreign policy of non-intervention, peace, and free trade as prescribed by America's founders. We're the only political organization which respects you as a unique and competent individual, they say. So, this lawsuit um, is not a new one. This did not just happen. I'm reading this story because this has been before the courts in Alabama, and uh, they're making a decision on it. But, A, I just learned about this last week. I'm sharing this on this show because this is news to me. I know that we have a two-party system effectively in our country, but I am just becoming aware at age 31 of all the mechanisms in place to ensure that no other political party gain access to the ballot and to the voters. George Washington, uh, when he left office, famously recommended and warned against the idea of a two-party system. And it's starting to look like uh, Georgie Boy was right about that. Mm, other things, not so much. Dental hygiene, not listening to you. Your record's not good. Um, equality, not, not, not listening to you, Georgie. But on this, it appears that George Washington has been proven correct. Because one of the things holding us back from growth and from change and from unity and from equality in our country is the stranglehold that the Republican Party and the Democratic Party have on the populace. Because they know, they know that they can basically do as they wish. As long as they don't do enough to lose you to the other side, they're good. They're good. They keep their jobs. They unify you around the enemy, which is the other team. They tell you what they want to hear, what you want to hear. They get elected, and they do as they please. They protect their own interests. They advance their own agendas and those of whom line their pockets. And I knew that the two-party system was a hard thing to overcome. But hey, I thought, I, I genuinely thought it was just because not enough people cared to vote for the other parties. I didn't know. I didn't realize. Call me naive, but I didn't realize that things were in place to keep those parties from even communicating with the voters, from getting on the ballots, from having the same fair chance that the other two parties have. And the parties collude together to make sure that it happens that way. I'm not a libertarian. I agree with uh, a little bit of their platform and the things that they put forward. Not all of it, certainly. But with this, I'm in lockstep with them. Because all parties should have access to public records and to resources that are provided by the states to the two main parties. And basically what you have here 
is the state of Alabama saying if you are a third party candidate and you want to run, like even if you were in a, in a small town in Alabama with 25,000 people or 10,000 people and you want to run as a libertarian candidate just to even get on the ballot, you've got to receive 50,000 signatures from residents of your state. Do you know how hard that is when you live in a town that doesn't even have a fraction of that many people? You've got to travel around the state or have your aides travel around the state collecting signatures just to get on the ballot, and that's time that you should be campaigning, that you should be meeting the people, that you should be raising money, that you should be getting your platform out there. And even if you're able to get 50,000 signatures and get on the ballot, the state's going to hand out crucial information like voter registration, who votes, how they register, where they're at, how to get in touch with them, what were the numbers from last time, They're going to hand out this information to any Republican or any Democratic candidate. But if you want it, you got to fork over $34,000. And if you pay with a credit card, another $850 on top of that. Does that not seem backwards to anybody else? Does that not seem wrong? Unconstitutional, un-American at its core? To prop up these two parties and say if anybody else wants to run from a different party, we're going to make it almost impossible. And there are other states. There are other states that require 100,000 signatures. Tennessee requires 100,000 signatures from a third-party candidate. It's crazy. It's crazy. It don't make any sense. It shouldn't be legal for these two parties to collude together against all other parties and for the government to basically insulate themselves from being voted out of a job. Because their limits in competition, and they're saying, uh, we might lose to the other team, but then we're going to get our turn again. And we'll just swap back and forth. We'll take turns. We'll, we'll be against them. They'll be against us. But we'll work together to make sure it ain't nobody else that gets a slice of the pie or a seat at the table. And to me, that seems super un-American. And I'm just learning about it. Maybe you're just learning about it, too. George Washington, not a good advice giver on oral hygiene or equality, but he was right about political parties. I think we need more than a two-party system in America, and I think that it's only right that those parties are given a fair chance to grow and to get their message out to the American people. Our next story, China will be our main partner, says the Taliban. Spokesperson says Beijing ready to invest in Afghanistan and help rebuild the country. China will be our main partner and represents a great opportunity for us because it's ready to invest in our country and support reconstruction efforts, Zabhula Muhajid said in an interview published by Italian newspaper La Repubblica on Wednesday. He said the Taliban values China's Belt and Road Initiative as the project will revive the ancient Silk Road. He said China will also help Afghanistan fully utilize its rich copper resources and give the country a path into global markets. The Taliban also view Russia as an important partner in the region and will maintain good relations with Moscow, he added. Speaking about the Kabul airport, Muhajid said the facility is fully under Taliban control but has been seriously damaged. Qatar and Turkey are leading efforts to resume operations at the airport, he told the Italian publication. The airport should be clean within the next three days and will be rebuilt in a short time. I hope it will be operational again in September, he said. On relations with Italy, Muhajid said the Taliban hope Italy will recognize their government and reopen its embassy in Kabul. The Taliban took control of Afghanistan on August 15th, 
forcing President Ashraf Ghani and other top officials to flee the country. The group has been working to form a government, and an announcement is expected on Friday. I am no expert on foreign relations or foreign affairs, but the idea that the Chinese government will be recognizing the Taliban, helping them build relationships on a global scale when it comes to trading, and will commit to rebuilding their infrastructure. That doesn't sound like good news to me. And you throw Russia in the in the mix too. The Taliban is basically like, hey, do you have a difficult relationship with the Americans? Then we want to be your friends. Call us at the Taliban. 1-800-SCREW-YOU-JOE. That's 1-800-SCREW-YOU-JOE. Like, did you, did you see the, the post on, uh, it was going around on Twitter, of the Taliban trolling the President of the United States of America? Like, what world do we live in that the way that this war, this 20-year-old war ends, the next thing that happens is that there's a picture on the internet circulating of the Taliban, the Taliban with ice cream cones, Trolling the American president. That's crazy. And now, um, a lot of people predicted this, saw this coming, both on the left and the right. Some conspiracy theorists on the right, as they are called, um, were very concerned as, as soon as we announced that we were leaving Afghanistan that this might happen. And it'll be interesting to see what it is. It appears to only be a relationship brought on by financial incentive. But isn't that how all relationships begin? And isn't this a situation where the last thing that we need is China buying influence um, all over the world? Um, I don't want us to be in a cold war with China. I don't have interest in us being in any type of war with anybody, let alone the Chinese. Um, But they are very open that they have a goal um, to be the world superpower in every form and facet by 2030. And uh, they've been very active in rebuilding countries in Africa and buying influence there. And it looks like they're trying to do that in Afghanistan, too. Um, The Taliban has already been pretty ruthless since taking over. On the one hand, uh, the White House said today that the Taliban has been very flexible and supportive in helping U.S. citizens get out of Afghanistan since our troops have left. Uh, What else are they supposed to say? And they have encouraged the former president to return to Afghanistan and said that they will not harm him, that they would like to include him in the planning of their government. So on the one hand, those things are happening. They're trying to, to gain some type of legitimacy to present themselves um, better in a front-facing way toward the public and the world on the world stage. And they're also doing things like beheading Christians, causing the last known Jewish citizen of Afghanistan to flee, arresting and beating and assaulting women for protesting the government, and luring gay men to meet up with potential dates only to find out that they are being put to death. My desire for the people of Afghanistan is, is peace and prosperity, and for their country to be war-free and rebuilt, and for things to go well. And on the one hand, we can't be the world's police all the time. We shouldn't have had people there for 20 years. It was too long. It was too much. The cost was too great. We didn't have 
a focused goal in mind. We didn't we didn't do very much winning. But on the other hand, does anybody really expect us to trust and believe that the Taliban is going to just cease being the Taliban? That all of a sudden the Taliban is going to be nicer and inclusive and kind and civil? We're talking about the Taliban. Like, go look for the reports coming out of Afghanistan, the things that are happening there already. When I worked in a grocery store, I did overnight shift from 12 at night till 6 in the morning. My wife was pregnant with our first child. We couldn't afford health insurance, so I would work all day at my, my regular job, my full-time job. I would come home. Um, I would hang out for a little bit with my wife. I would eat dinner. I'd go to sleep. I'd get up at midnight. I'd go work till 6 in the morning. I'd come home. I'd eat breakfast with my wife. I'd take a shower. I'd go back to my full-time job. And I did that for like six or eight months. And one thing I remember that I had to do every every night in the in the Tom Thumb gas station. What's up, Tom Thumb Croker Company? It's a good company for real. One thing I had to do was to front face all of the merchandise. So if there was a line of uh, a row of cheese puffs, and there were some bags that weren't very good looking, and that had some dents or some scratches or some scrapes or that weren't presentable, I would put them in the back. I would turn. All of the bags of chips facing the right direction. I would fluff them up a little bit. I would make sure that what people saw when they came by that space was the best I had to offer. And that's all the Taliban is doing. They're just front-facing. They're just making sure that what the world sees in the, in the aftermath of us leaving Afghanistan is not so bad that we rush right back in. And I don't want us to rush right back in. But I also want better for the people over there. And I don't buy into the to the version of events that the Taliban is trying to sell. And them making partnerships and receiving legitimacy on the world stage is something that makes me nervous. And it's something that we're going to keep an eye on. What do you think? What's really happening here behind the scenes? What's the deal with China and the Taliban? What is China up to? Is it okay? Is it good? Is it beneficial for the, the people of Afghanistan, for their government, even if it's a government that's brutal for them to be recognized as legitimate on the world stage so that they can engage in trade so that their people can receive aid. Is that a good thing or does the risk outweigh the benefit? Let us know. Email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Get at us on Twitter at intheshed4 and let us know what you see. We're smarter together than we are separately. And hey, honestly, I'm a little bit worried about India. I'm a little worried about India and all this too. You know, I got love for you, India. I want to be on the billboard. Gotta say that once a show. <laughs> but how's this going to play out for you guys? What difficulties is your government, what predicaments are your government going to now be in with the Taliban taking over? Let us know. Love to hear your perspective. Our last story in the world of politics, KFC opening pop-up hotel where rooms have press for chicken button. And it's not in Afghanistan either. The Taliban not getting all that fried chicken. It's not happening. KFC is opening a pop-up hotel in London where guests can order room service with a press for chicken button. The deal is running for 11 nights starting August 18th. Oh man, we missed it. We missed it. When guests can check in for one night only in the so-called House of Harland, named after the founder, Colonel Harland Sanders. 
And yes, the promotion at 9A Club Row, an apartment building, is a nod to the number of herbs and spices. I said herbs. Herbs and spices, yeah. That's right, herbs. They got nine, apparently. In the Colonel's original recipe. The package includes a black Cadillac, the Colonel Mobile, that will pick up guests and take them to the hotel where a chick-in clerk will greet them, the company said. Guests will have access to a Hot Winger arcade machine and a private cinema showing chicken-themed flicks. What What kind of... <laughs> what chicken-themed flicks are there? Um, chicken Run, that animated film. I can't think of another film that involves chickens. Has there been very many films? I mean, I'll say, I'll say, I'll say, I'll say, Junior. Maybe that man gonna be on there. But other than that, I can't think of a single chicken-related film. Rooms are decorated in poultry themes, and guests will slip into sheets or use towels with a fried chicken motif, according to a press release about the promotion. Room rates are $154. That's actually not bad. That's not bad for a regular hotel room, to be honest with you, $154. With all the proceeds going to the KFC Foundation, which supports youth organizations. Guests are also given a $139 allowance to order KFC food, and the idea is to prevent overconsumption, a KFC rep told Insider. $139? You know how much chicken you can get for $139 at KFC? You know how much... That is enough chicken to make you incredibly happy. That's how I'm going to choose to finish that sentence. That's enough chicken to make you incredibly happy. Reservations can only be made via Hotels.com, which is the exclusive booking agent, but don't hold your breath for a room. It appears that the promotion is sold out. It's not the first time that Yum! Brands, which owns the chicken chain, has opened up a themed hotel. In 2019, Taco Bell opened the Bell Hotel and Resorts pop-up in Palm Springs, California, where reservations sold out in two minutes. Man, I'm legitimately bummed that I missed the KFC Hotel. Because I've only been on two vacations in the last ten years. Like, for real, for real. That's kind of hard for me to say out loud. I just lost a little bit of my soul in saying that. I've been in, in the job... Um, the field that I work in for 10 years, I've taken two full, actual, real, maybe three vacations. But hey, let me learn that there is a KFC hotel within driving distance or a short flight and your boy's got his bags packed. And then you got an arcade system and a personal cinema for me to watch chicken-related movies and $139. To buy all the chicken that your boy could ever want. I'm not so sure that that is a hotel. That sounds a lot like heaven. And I am a religious man. I love the Lord with all my heart and my soul and my body. But I love me some KFC. And that sounds a lot like heaven to me. I don't know if I could convince the missus to go with me. But I would probably go anyway. Like, you don't even have to go anywhere. You play arcade games, go to the movies, and eat your chicken in peace. All for like $154 a night. Like, I would consider booking all 11 nights myself. And I am not a rich man. This show does not have any sponsors yet. 
India's going to come through. Maybe KFC should be a sponsor. Your boy just has put in a few good words for you, KFC. You might think I'm being over the top or facetious. Um, I actually do have a love for KFC. It is a running joke in my family that whenever all of us are together, my siblings and their spouses and our children and my parents, one running joke that we have is, hey, I heard somebody's going to KFC. Because that is a real-life quote from your boy when I was trying to convince people to ride with me to KFC. And I, l- I like fried chicken, okay? I- I've grown up in the South. I live in Alabama. Uh, my papa makes the best fried chicken. He's kind of like Colonel Sanders. Like He's from Kentucky, too. He grew, up, he grew up in West Virginia but lived in Kentucky. He's He looks kind of like Colonel Sanders, honestly. Uh, he makes better chicken than the Colonel does by far. Like, it's not even close. I've never had fried chicken that comes anywhere close to my grandpa's fried chicken. It is phenomenal. But if I cannot have grandpa's fried chicken, it's KFC. And the reason why is because one summer, my last, the summer before my last year of college, I worked out in Colorado for the summer. A small town about four hours west of Denver called Montrose, Colorado. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful place. One of my favorite things I've ever done in my life. I would love to go back and visit, take my family. But A, being that far away from my friends and my family and my culture, because they ain't had no sweet tea over there, um, it got to be where it was a little hard a couple times in the summer. Your boy got a little bit homesick. I loved it up there. I wouldn't mind living there, but I got a little homesick. I miss my girlfriend, who is now my wife. I miss my friends and my mama. And so what I would do when I got a little bit homesick is I would go to the only place in town that came close to reminding me of home. KFC. Fried chicken. Mashed potatoes and gravy. Kentucky. Where my mama's from, whose basketball team I root for, the chicken that reminds me of my Colonel Sanders lookalike grandpa. And that was my security blanket. So I've got a love for KFC. <laughs> and I've now talked about it uh, probably equal or longer to any of the actual like important news stories that we've covered. And that is why you come to this show. Because who else is covering KFC like this? Nobody. I'm in a shed in Alabama with a 50-foot extension cord. First thing in the morning, two cups of coffee. I'm in the shed talking about my love for KFC. It's, um, this is my hobby. This is what we do. And uh, I, I'm just glad that you're here with me. And I'll be glad to split a bucket of chicken with you anytime. You just let me know. You come to Alabama, I'm buying That's all for the world of politics. Let's switch to this, the world of sports. And let's hit the headlines. Dak throws for 403 yards in return, but Brady has last laugh as Bucks defeat the Cowboys to kick off the NFL season. LaMarcus Aldridge comes out of retirement to join the Brooklyn Nets. Gonzaga's Mark Few ticketed for driving while intoxicated. Kentucky basketball lands first number one recruit since Nerland's Noel. Auburn forward Alan Flanagan to miss 12 to 14 weeks with Achilles injury. Steelers and Watt agree to $112 million extension. Giraffe named after Bengals quarterback Joe Burrow dies after illness. 
and irked Nick Saban questions Crimson Tide's intensity as they prepare for powerhouse Mercer. Mercer. I'm sure the New York Mets are up to something this week, but I don't really care. We don't talk baseball in this show. Let's get to some real sports. Let's talk college football. College football is back, and it was a lot of fun last weekend. Five FCS teams upset Division I programs, which was surprising. Alabama football is reloaded, and there were a couple of marquee matchups that took place. The AP poll was released yesterday, the updated AP poll, and this is what it looks like. Alabama coming off that impressive 44-13 win over Miami is number one. Georgia has moved up to number two after defeating Clemson. Ohio State is third, Oklahoma fourth, Texas A&M fifth, Clemson sixth, Cincinnati seven, Notre Dame eight, Iowa State nine, followed by Iowa at ten. They play each other this weekend. Penn State at 11, Oregon 12, 13th is Florida, USC at 14th, Texas at 15th, UCLA makes an appearance in the poll at 16th, Coastal Carolina is 17th, Wisconsin 18th, Virginia Tech 19th, followed by Ole Miss, Utah, Miami, Arizona State, North Carolina, and Auburn at 25. Before we get to what's going on this week in college football, let's take a look at what we messed up on and where we missed the mark last week. Because last week we introduced our In the Shed with West preseason top 25 poll. Um, Just as a refresher, the top 10 looked like this. Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, Oklahoma, Ohio State, Cincinnati, Texas A&M, Indiana, Oregon, and Iowa State. Uh, yeah... So I'll be the first to admit, Alabama is the best football team in the country right now, and as of one week's worth of play, it is not close. It is not close. Ohio State is starting a new quarterback. He looked really good in the second half of their game against Minnesota, Um, but they had a lot of struggles in the first half. They've got a lot of new players on the field. It's going to take time. Oklahoma looked like they had a good offense, but they had absolutely no defense again this year, at least in their opening game against Tulane, and they almost lost to Tulane at home. And then there's Georgia versus Clemson. First of all, please don't tell me what a great game this was. What we saw on the field was a lot of talent and two lockdown defenses. And that's all. The quarterback play was just not there on either side for JT Daniels or DJ Uangalele. I think it's actually Uangale, but I like to say Lele. DJ and JT, um, they sound like members of NSYNC. And they were tearing up the heart of their fans, but not of the opposing secondary on Saturday. Clemson ran the ball for two yards against Georgia's defense. Two yards. The final score was 10-3. to Georgia scored a touchdown on defense. And Clemson kicked a field goal. And that was the difference in the game. It wasn't a great game. It was two elite defenses. Now Georgia has uh, some wide receivers, starting wide receivers, that really would and could make a difference in the football game who are out. I get that. They had some players who were in the virus protocol. But even so, it seemed like their game plan was just we have a defense that's going to keep them from scoring and we're going to run that clock down. We're going to do just enough to win. And and they did to their credit. They executed, they did, they won. 
They deserve to be the number two team in the country this week in the AP poll. I think they have it correct there. But it's not like they were good on offense either. Clemson's defense returned 11 starters. They have a good defense. And they'll lick their wounds. They'll go back to the ACC and beat most teams like a drum. DJ will get back on track. We'll see if they have enough left on their schedule to have a shot at the playoffs, depending on what these other top teams do. But I made a mistake. And hey, I'm the first one that will admit to it when I make mistakes. When I make a mistake, your boy will own up to his mistakes. And putting Clemson at number one was a mistake. I ranked them at number one because even though Alabama just reloads every year, they were replacing their starting center, quarterback, running back, their entire wide receiver room, their offensive coordinator, a second offensive lineman. I just thought that it might take them a couple weeks to get into form, for Bryce Young and company to round into form. And so if we're looking at just week one, I knew that Clemson would have a good defense. Their quarterback has more experience and looked good in a start against Notre Dame and against other teams last year. I thought that for game one, not for the whole season, not overall talent, but for game one, all things considered, with their whole coaching staff together again and coming back, I thought that Clemson would be in a better position week one. Even knowing they were playing Georgia, and I even said on the show last week Georgia might win this game. What I didn't expect was for DJ to look like he looked. Even against a good defense like Georgia, an elite defense, one of the two or three best defenses in the country bar none. I expected him to run the football. They didn't have that in their game plan at all. That man is a battering ram. He didn't run the football at all. Their receivers looked lost. Didn't look like they knew how to run the route. Either that or the routes were, so, were too predictable because Georgia's cornerbacks were jumping them all night. So putting Clemson at number one in my poll was a definite mistake. Mistake number two. I ranked Indiana as a top ten football team. What the blankety, 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 blank was I thinking? Michael Penix Jr. was a good quarterback last year. He wasn't on Saturday. Tom Allen is a good coach. I expected Indiana to take another step forward. And they got throttled by an Iowa team that is now ranked in the top 10. And that surely, surely is going to start off the season with five, six wins in a row. And then finish seven and five. Or eight and four like they always do. Surely. <laughs> Indiana laid laid an egg. They got whipped on both sides of the football. That game wasn't even close. Michael Penix Jr. threw three interceptions. I ranked him in the top ten. Mistake number two. My third mistake was already mentioned by an emailer. I put the Washington Huskies at 14th overall. That was six spots ahead of any other poll. And then they proceeded to step out onto the field and lose 13-7 to Montana. The Montana Grizzlies, an FCS team, they scored seven points and lost 13-7. Talk about underperforming with a size and talent gap like that, and you only put seven points on the board. That was my third mistake. There were some things in the poll that I got right, thankfully, a few. One, I had Georgia ranked third overall. Uh, they definitely look at this point to be ahead of Oklahoma and Ohio State. I had Arizona State in the top 25 at 18th. They've now joined the top 25 in the other two polls. 
I had Auburn at 21st and UCF at 23rd. Those teams both looked good in their opening season victories. And I had Notre Dame at 22nd, which I didn't get a chance to read the email. I got about three emails from Notre Dame fans complaining that I would have the audacity to rank them so far back. They're a top 10 team in the other polls. Did they look like a top 10 team in Tallahassee? Granted, the story of Mackenzie Milton, uh, the quarterback that was at UCF and broke his leg, almost lost the ability to walk, let alone play football. Hasn't played a game in two years. Came off the bench and almost led Florida State to an overtime win. His performance was miraculous. That was incredible. I was rooting for him. But did Notre Dame look like a top 10 team? Almost blowing an 18-point lead on the road to an unranked FSU team that had a losing season last year? No. As of right now, I think I have them properly rated at 22. And if you don't remember, let me give you a little reminder of how this poll is going to work. We got our top 25 poll, our In the Shed with West top 25 poll. And now that we set our preseason poll, we're not actually going to touch it until after week four. We're going to gather actual evidence, actually look at how these teams are performing week to week, and then with proper intel, we'll adjust the rankings as needed. And I was honest with you. I just showed you some areas we're going to have to make adjustments. I get it. But let me show you why we're doing that, why we're waiting a few weeks before we adjust the polls. We had Auburn ranked. AP and coaches poll didn't. They do now. We had Arizona State ranked. AP and coaches poll didn't. They do now. The AP only dropped Clemson to sixth overall. Sixth overall, even though they didn't even score a touchdown against Georgia. They're 0-1 and ranked sixth in the country. They kept Cincinnati back at seventh. They barely moved Texas A&M ahead of Clemson. Iowa and Penn State are ranked 10th and 11. We'll find out a lot about them in the coming weeks. Iowa against Iowa State on Saturday. Penn State a week from Saturday hosts Auburn. LSU is out of the poll and UCLA is in. Ole Miss and Utah and Virginia Tech are all ranked after wins. Miami is still ranked 22nd in the country after losing 44-13. to I know that they were 15th in the poll, but how do you still be a top 25 team with an 0-1 record? losing 44-13. to 13. I don't care who you play. And same goes for North Carolina, who's ranked 24th in the country after looking horrible at Vautech to open up the season. So rather than uh, make reactionary adjustments week to week that don't even make sense and feel like you're forced to put 0-1 teams in a top 25 ranking just because you started them out so high, and refuse to move Cincinnati above 7th or Coastal Carolina above 17th or even to rank Liberty until they go 8 no. We're not going to play that game on In the Shed. We're going to keep it a buck with you. The parts that we got right, we'll say, hey, we got that right. The parts that we get wrong, we'll say, yeah, we was way off base. And in four weeks, we'll put our new rankings out. We'll make adjustments based on actual play on the field. Not where you started in the poll. Not the name on the front of your jersey. Or how many times you're on ESPN or ABC. Overall, the SEC had a pretty good Saturday, a pretty good week, winning all of their games except for two teams, Vanderbilt and LSU. Vanderbilt was one of the five Division I teams to lose to an FCS school. They lost to East Tennessee State, 
23-3. Clark Lee has his work cut out for him like few other people in this sport. That team is bad. That team is bad. Vanderbilt has never been an upper echelon SEC team, but they lost to an FCS school 23-3. They couldn't even put a touchdown on the board. They have problems all over the field, a lack of talent everywhere. And that was an embarrassment to the SEC. I know that they, they bring our collective GPA up. And they've had some good basketball teams in the past. But that's embarrassing. The other SEC team to lose was LSU. LSU, who uh, was ranked in every poll, including ours, and is out of all of them now. They went out to UCLA and they got outclassed. They got outmanned and outperformed and outcoached. And they lost 38-27. to And the damning part, if you're an LSU fan, is that the same problems that they had last year persisted in this game. A lack of ability to stop the pass and the run. A lack of physicality on the offensive and defensive lines. Inconsistent quarterback play. Coaching decisions that make you scratch your head. And a lack of discipline. And Ed O is in trouble. I know it's just week one, but Ed Orjon, Orgeron, Ed Orgeron, A-A-Ron, Ed Orgeron done messed up. He's in big trouble. I saw a lot of comparisons this week comparing that man to Gene Chizik. Because Gene Chizik won a national title at Auburn and, and was fired two years later during a three-win season. Let me tell you something. I think Gene Chizik is a much better football coach, head football coach, than Ed O. They both won a championship by having a transfer quarterback that had one of the best seasons in college football history, Cam Newton for Gene Chizik, Joe Burrow for Ed O. They both had a hotshot young coordinator that lit the offensive world on fire at the time for Auburn was Gus Malzahn, for LSU was Joe Brady. They both had opportunistic defenses. But I think Gene Chizik is a better football coach overall than Ed O. I think he had better relationships with his staff. I think he made better hires to his staff. I think he had more discipline on his team. I like Coach O. I think that he's a great ambassador and representative of LSU football. Nobody loves LSU football like that man. But he's in danger of losing his job this season which sounds crazy considering he just won a national title. Things are not good at LSU. One thing we're going to be doing all season long when it comes to college football is something that I call In the Shed Solid 7. The In the Shed Solid 7. And so the idea is, is each week we're going to pick seven football games. We're going to go against the spread, keep up with our progress. The goal is all season long, after picking a total of 105 games, We want our percentage, our correct prediction percentage, to be at 53%. Because 52.5% when you're gambling on sports puts you in the money. Keeps your head above water. If you are a professional gambler, if you're hitting 52.5%, you're making money. And I want to prove that we can make some money. And that we know college football. And we want to have some fun with it. So last week I put this out on Twitter. I didn't have a chance to get it on the show, but I put it on Twitter And we didn't get off to a very good start, my babies. 
We did not. We went two and five on the week. We're hovering at 40%. That's a losing record and a, a percentage that does not put us in the money. Uh, we took Oklahoma minus 27 versus Tulane. Did not work out too well. Uh, we took Indiana plus three and a half against Iowa, and Indiana got shellacked. I bet on Mac Brown in North Carolina at five and a half points. That didn't work out so well. We took Baylor at minus 14 against Texas State. Didn't happen. And we took Missouri minus 15 versus Central Michigan. Also didn't work out. (laughs) I guess if I'm betting on Baylor football and Oklahoma to come through and Indiana football and Mac Brown, if I'm counting on all of those things, I was sunk from the beginning. But I honestly believed in those picks. The two we got right, we bet uh, Rutgers minus 14 versus Temple. Uh, They covered the spread there. And then also uh, Jim Harbaugh in Michigan at 17-point favorites against Western Michigan. They came through against the directional school from their same state. And so we went 2-5. and Uh, We're going to rebound this week. I feel way better about my picks this week. I have picked seven games, and they are as follows. I'm taking Army. Minus seven versus Western Kentucky. Army's a good football team. They have a good coach. Um, They're just a few paces outside of our top 25 poll at the moment. And uh, I'm taking them minus seven. I'm also taking South Carolina plus two at Eastern Carolina. South Carolina is not a good football team. Um, They almost lost last week to a team that they have no business losing to. Uh, Shane Beamer is in his first year. Their talent is not on par with other SEC teams, but they're still an SEC football team. And I think that they'll make improvements. I do think they have a pretty decent coaching staff there at South Carolina, and I think they win. I think they beat Eastern Carolina this week, and so I'm taking them at plus two. I'm also taking NC State. To cover the spread, they're two-and-a-half-point favorites. They play at Mississippi State. I don't think that game will be close. I think uh, NC State is another team that I think is pretty close to a top 25 team. They might already be. Um, They were one of my last cuts in making a top 25, and uh, I think that they beat Mississippi State by a couple of scores. I don't think it's going to be close. Uh, I think they covered the spread. I'm going with NC State. Another team I'm picking to cover the spread this week are the Liberty Flames, who are five-point favorites at Troy. Liberty is a team that we ranked in our top 25 poll at 13th in the country. They've got an uh, offensive-minded coach in Hugh Freeze, who uh, has a proven track record. Auburn transfer quarterback Malik Willis, who is a dual threat. And I think they they beat Troy. I don't think it's that close of a game. Um, I'm going with Liberty. Also taking Oklahoma State as 13.5-point favorites versus Tulsa. New Mexico as 18.5-point favorites against New Mexico State. That's with Kentucky transfer Terry Wilson at quarterback for the Lobos. And I'm also taking the Florida Gators as 29-point favorites versus South Florida. Last week we got burned when we bet on teams to cover giant spreads. But I'm double-dipping. And I'm moving my chips into the middle of the table. And I'm betting that Florida is that much better than South Florida. So I'm taking Army 
South Carolina, NC State, Liberty, Oklahoma State, Florida, and New Mexico. Last week we went 2-5 and five against the spread. Hopefully this week we rebound. So there's your picks. You should be able to hear this on Friday night. And you should still have some time, if you so choose, to do whatever you choose to do with that information. But I'm just saying, I think we're going to get back on track this week. In addition to college football, the NFL season kicks off in fullness on Sunday. The first game, Thursday Night Football, was last night with the Patriots defeating the Cowboys. Wow, did I just say the Patriots? The Patriots weren't on the field, bruh. The Patriots ain't even playing yet. I said the Patriots. My brain (laughs) autocorrected. Because Tom Brady plays for the world championship Tampa Bay Buccaneers. And in fact, that is who was on the field last night against the Cowboys. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers defeated the Cowboys in exciting fashion. The Cowboys made the mistake that so many teams have made. How in the world do you give Tom Brady the ball back with time left on the clock? I don't care if you got to take a knee on two plays before you kick the field goal, Cowboys. You gave that man like a minute and 35 seconds in the timeout. Yeah, we all knew what was happening. We have seen that movie before. And you learned your lesson the hard way. So we're not going to um, make picks against the spread when it comes to the NFL football. To me, NFL football is so much harder to predict week to week um, as far as outcomes and point spreads. those guys are all professionals, even on the bad teams, and uh, you just never know how things are going to shake out. I have much more faith in my ability to correctly predict college football, even though I didn't do too well the first week. Um, but one thing we are going to do with the NFL season coming up on Sunday, I wanted to give seven bold predictions. Why seven? Because we picked seven college football games. So here are the In the Shed with West seven bold predictions for this NFL season. Prediction one, Jalen Hurts doesn't finish the year as the starter. I'm still not sold on the idea on the idea of Jalen Hurts as a starting quarterback in the NFL. He's got potential. He's a good player. But I think by the time the season ends, Philly will have moved on. Prediction number two, Joe Burrow wins comeback player of the year. Uh, if Joe Burrow stays healthy, I expect him to have a good season. Um, the Bengals have tried to address some of their issues on the offensive line. Uh, Joe Burrow has weapons around him on that offense, has an offensive-minded coaching staff. I think if he can stay healthy, he'll have a great season. Prediction number three, the Washington football team wins the NFC East. I don't buy into Philly. I think the Giants um, are still a year or two away. That leaves Washington and Dallas. Uh, With Dak Prescott healthy, Dallas will be competitive in almost every game they play. They're going to put up points. But Washington has a really good defense, like a really, really good defense. And if they can get slightly above average quarterback play from Ryan Fitzpatrick, if he can be Ryan, he doesn't even have to be Ryan Fitzmagic, but if he can just be above average slightly for a whole season, not for six games or eight games or ten, but for a whole season, then I think the the Washington football team wins the division. And they're NFC East champions. Prediction number four, Patrick Mahomes does not win MVP. I'm going with the field. 
Prediction number five, this is the last year for Matt Ryan in the ATL and for Russell Wilson in Seattle. Um, Matt Ryan still has enough in the tank for his team to be competitive. He's still a starting quarterback in the league. Obviously, Russell Wilson is one of the two or three best quarterbacks in football right now, but I just think that their time has come. I think both of those guys, after this season, move on. I think Atlanta chooses to move on from Matt Ryan, and I think that Russell Wilson chooses to lead the Seahawks. I could be wrong, but these are my bold predictions, and that is my prediction. Prediction number six, Justin Fields starts the majority of the season for the Bears, and Chicago makes the playoffs. So I know Andy Dalton is QB1, or so they say. Surely, surely that man can't start very many football games for Chicago. Chicago was a playoff team last year. Don't seem like it, but they were. They're going to be good on defense. But their head coach and their GM are about to lose their jobs. And I just can't imagine with your job and your career on the line, pushing your chips to the middle of the table, when your hand looks like Andy Dalton. Andy Dalton might be the starter, but Justin Fields takes his place, starts over half the games, and the Bears make the playoffs. And my last bold prediction for the NFL season, the Cowboys will be looking for a new head football coach. I don't think McCarthy is as terrible as a coach as he's been made out to be. For some reason, when you get to some of these markets like Dallas, um, you get too much credit or too much blame. I think he's a decent football coach, but I already said I don't think the Cowboys win the division. And if they don't win the division, they're going to be hard-pressed in the NFC to make the playoffs. And if they don't make the playoffs this year, after paying Dak, after paying Zeke, with a healthy quarterback, with a reconstructed and healthy offensive line, after drafting C.D. Lamb, I think Jerry Jones might get an itchy trigger finger. And he might start looking for somebody else. So those are my seven bold predictions. Uh, Get at me in the shed with Wes at gmail.com or on Twitter at in the shed four. And let me know what you think about those. Uh, Where did I go right? Where did I go wrong? Are those predictions even bold predictions or are they lame? What do you think about them? Uh, Jalen Hurts doesn't finish the year as starting quarterback. Joe Burrow wins comeback player of the year. The Washington football team wins the NFC East. Patrick Mahomes doesn't win MVP. This is the last year for Matt Ryan and Russell Wilson with their teams. Justin Fields starts a majority of Bears games and Chicago makes the playoffs. And the Cowboys will be looking for a new head coach. Let us know. I'd love to hear from you. Email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. That's all for the world of sports. Now let's switch to this, the world of the paranormal. And for our first story, we go to China. Woman claims she hasn't slept in 40 years. A woman in China maintains that she hasn't needed to close her eyes and go to sleep in over four decades. Yeah. For most of us, several days without sleep would leave us barely able to function. Yet for Li Zhanying, a woman from Henan, China, the idea of falling asleep is itself nothing more than a distant memory. Now in her mid-40s, the last time she recalls sleeping was when she was a small child. While this might seem implausible, nobody has actually seen her sleep. Several of her friends and neighbors have repeatedly (laughs) attempted to catch her in the act, but to no avail. They got some time on their hands in China, huh? 
That's pretty funny. Neighbors and friends have tried to catch her in the act, but she wasn't asleep. Incredibly, Lee's claim of having never slept in over 40 years is actually true. Word? Well, sort of. Doctors have now determined that she suffers from a very rare condition that sees her sleeping while awake and fully conscious, meaning that she can technically be sleeping even while having a conversation with somebody. That is my dream. <laughs> that sound, give me this condition and put me in that KFC hotel room and I will be happy for the rest of my days. If I could literally be asleep while you standing there talking to me about the weather, that would make me so happy. I love to sleep. I don't get to sleep. That would make me happy. The medical team used data collected as data, not data, during a 48-hour brainwave monitoring session to reveal that Lee got light and moderate sleep despite neither going to bed or closing her eyes. I bet Lee is a creepy, <laughs> creepy individual to have around. Like, imagine this lady being your house guest and she's sitting in your recliner all hours of the night with her eyes open wide. But really, she is asleep. This sleep while awake phenomenon. Do, 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 do. Phenomenon. Do, 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 do. Phenomenon. Do, 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 Been a few weeks since we got to do that. We had to hit it hard. Hope you enjoyed it. Shout out to Dave and Tim. This sleep while awake phenomenon is similar to sleepwalking. So while she hasn't technically gone without sleep for 40 years, she doesn't need to go to sleep like a normal person. As a result, she's lived a life twice as long as the rest of us. Nah, see, I, I feel like they could probably fix that for her if they wanted to. <laughs> like, it's probably, like, is it as simple as just taking an over-the-counter sleep aid and then she'll really be able to close her eyes and go to sleep? Like, what do you do about that? Because I can't imagine if she's sleeping with her eyes open all the time that she's ever getting, like, good, deep sleep. It's kind of like a superpower, though, to just be able to sleep. She's like a narcoleptic person, but she awake, though. It's so confusing. Tell me you a parent without telling me you a parent. Hadn't slept in 40 years. Because, <laughs> hey, fam, I got a 5-year-old and a 1-year-old, and that's how I feel. I'm not even 40 years old. It feels like it's been 40 years since I've slept. All adulthood is. All, all adulthood is, is going to sleep before you want to and waking up before you want to. Put that bad boy on repeat and that becomes your life. I don't know if Lee has kids, but I certainly relate to her predicament. For our next story, we go to the nation of Dubai, which I recently heard somebody pronounce Dubois. I had never heard that before. My whole life I have said Dubai. Well, I can't say my whole life. I probably never said the word till I was probably in middle school at least. But I've always said Dubai. And I heard this person say Dubois. And I was like, am I wrong? Or are you a snob? Because I feel like in that situation, it's one or the other. Either I'm wrong, and if so, like I said, if I'm wrong, I will say, hey, I messed that up. 
I'm sorry, I like to learn. Correct me. But if I'm correct, and it's Dubai, and you are pronouncing it Dubois, you just a snob. And you can get up out my face. I'm going to be like Lee. You're going to be talking to me Dubois. I'm going to be asleep with my eyes open dreaming about some KFC. Mm-hmm. Dubai making its own rain to beat 120 degree heat. That's one way to beat the heat. Officials in Dubai are using drones to artificially increase rainfall as the city grapples with oppressive heat. Video this week shows. Officials in Dubai are using drones to artificially increase rainfall. Yo. The rain-making technology known as cloud seeding, like the kind of seed you plant in the ground, but this one you're planting in the air, was put into use as summer temperatures have surged past 120 degrees Fahrenheit in the United Arab Emirates city. The Independent reported, I said nation, didn't I? Talking about Dubai. Dubois. Yeah, it's a part of the UAE. It's a city, and uh, I messed that up. I'm sorry. I'm not that intelligent all the time but but it's a city my bad my bad Dubois experts have said the technology aims to make rain form more efficiently inside of clouds and in so doing make more water come down drones are used to shoot electrical charges into clouds causing them to clump together and trigger more rainfall footage shared on Sunday by the UAE's National Center of Meteorology showed the intense showers flooding roads in addition to flashes of lightning. Rainmaking has become common in dry countries such as the United Arab Emirates, which typically only records four inches of rain a year, the Independent reported. The global water shortage is worsening in many parts of the world, so the demand for fresh water is increasing, said Linda Zhao, a professor at the UAE's Khalifa University of Science and Technology, which spells cust. And that's kind of fun. She's a professor at CUST. That's awesome. I wish I went to a college that was called CUST. Khalifa University of Science Technology. And then you graduate and you, you cussed out. <laughs> that was a really bad, really bad dad joke. And I do not apologize. Cloud seeding could be one of the methods that can contribute to alleviating the water problem across the globe. Shouty, they out here making rain. Like, you remember back in the 2000s, wasn't it Fat Joe that made it rain? Fat Joe featuring Lil Wheezy? Fat Joe featuring Wheezy F Baby, they made it rain? And now officials... And the UAE city of Dubois is create their own weather. Did you know that this was a thing? Because on, on this show, I am confessing. I am confessing on this show. 31 years old, college educated. I ain't know about BLTs. I ain't know that the Democrats and the Republicans worked together to make sure that no other party had a seat at the table. I didn't know that Dubai might be pronounced Dubois. And I sure didn't know that you could create your own weather. Ain't this one of those conspiracy theories? I've heard for years these conspiracy theories. The government controls the weather. The government makes the gov. Hey, they really out here doing that. 
They out here in Dubois making it rain, and we ain't talking about that kind of making it rain. Not the kind Fat Joe was talking about. We talking about actual water from the sky. They got a drought. They got 120 degree weather, so they took some drones and planted seeds in the form of electrical charges in the clouds to make them produce more rain? That's crazy. I didn't know that was possible. Again, call me naive. But I ain't know. And that's crazy. Conspiracy theory? Uh, I think not. Kind of makes it go, hmm, doesn't it? And it's being used for a good purpose. It's being used for a good purpose. Right now. Our next story takes us to the land of Scotland. I won't attempt the accent. And I also won't try haggis. But I love the bagpipes. Let's go to Scotland. Loch Ness Monster spotted on sonar as image captures underwater creature. The latest spotting marks the third sighting of the Loch Ness Monster this summer. That is a really, really long headline. Possibly as long as the neck of the Loch Ness Monster. That's called a segue. I'm a professional. A Nessie hunter has claimed to have captured images of the Loch Ness Monster swimming in the water using high-tech equipment. Alleged sightings of the legendary beast You can't say alleged and then legendary in the same sentence. That's some crappy writing. Alleged sightings of legendary. Alleged legendary. You can't do that. It doesn't. The flow is all all messed up and out of whack. They should say possible. Possible sightings of the legendary beast have soared in the past few months and one tourist believes he has proof of Nessie in the lock. The latest spotting marks the third sighting of the Loch Ness Monster this summer. Did you know that? Have you heard of all three of these sightings? I have not. This is the first time I'm hearing about this. Brandon Scanlon, who has been named by the official Loch Ness Monster Sightings Register, claims to have recorded a sound image of a creature rumored to be between 3 and 4 meters, around 9 to 13 feet tall for the uninitiated, long below the waves. Edinburgh Live reports that Mr. Scanlon was traveling on the Nessie Hunter vessel used to ferry passengers on journeys around the lock, and that is now on my bucket list. I want to go on the Nessie Hunter. I want to tour the lock. I want to find a monster. I want to make friends with the monster. I want to have him or her on my podcast. In the Shadow West featuring Nessie. Let's go. It comes after a number of reported sightings in July and August purporting to be the alleged Plesiosaurus. According to the Register, during the latest sighting on August 26th, Benjamin Scanlon was on holiday with his family and took a trip on the Nessie Hunter of Loch Ness Cruises. He spotted something on the sonar on the boat and caught the image. Captain Mike of the boat estimated it to be 3 to 4 meters in length at a depth of about 20 meters, while the boat was in water about 40 meters deep. Plesiosaurus typically grew to a length of around 11 feet, according to fossil records, placing its right size in the middle of the captain's estimate. Recent sightings have included a Mr. Vcock claiming to have seen an unidentified creature rise 2 feet from the water before descending back to the PD depths while on holiday late last month. In another incident, a father and daughter claimed to have seen Nessie moving through the water while hiking nearby. So yeah, maybe 
the Loch Ness Monster has been spotted up to three times this summer. What do you think about the Loch Ness Monster? That's one of them. One of these cryptids or one of these uh, situations where people claim that it's an animal that, that is supposed to be extinct. Or they have different explanations. There was one not too long ago about a certain body part of a whale uh, possibly explaining the Loch Ness Monster. It was meant as a joke but picked up and people ran with it and it is not true. And you should look it up because it is interesting. I cannot talk about it. This is a family show. Um, but that's always been one of these stories and situations where... There's been so many sightings over so many years. It's a plausible place to have something that is undiscovered. That body of water can support a large creature. I don't know. Maybe we should do a deep dive and have an episode on the Loch Ness Monster. I've always found it interesting. I read several books as a child um, about the Loch Ness Monster in elementary school. Um, Yeah, that's probably weird, but I did. Uh, I haven't looked into it much as an adult, but I always enjoy seeing these sightings and hearing the stories. And uh, I don't know. It's just me. I think it's plausible. I think it's a possibility. Don't know what it is, but I think it's a possibility. I'll, maybe I'll put it out there on Twitter and see what you think. Um, do you think the Loch Ness Monster is real? What is your explanation for it? And we'll find out together. And for our last story this week in the world of the paranormal, we go, well, we don't go anywhere. Because it's all around us already. Do I have your attention? Good. Because this story is freaky. Like real freaky, freaky, freaky. Plants may not have ears. In fact, they don't. But they can hear way better than we thought. Plants may not have ears. But they can hear way better than we thought. Just the headline blows my mind. Let's dive into this article together. The flowers are listening, according to new research. Yo. Scientists have found evidence that plants can actually hear the buzz of passing bees and produce sweeter nectar in response to entice the flying insects in. And flowers are technically their ears. Based on observations of evening primroses, the team behind the new study discovered that within minutes of sensing the sound waves of nearby bee wings through flower petals, the concentration of the sugar in the plant's nectar was increasing by an average of 20%. The flowers even seemed to be able to tune out irrelevant background noise such as the wind. This capability could well give some plants an evolutionary advantage, say the scientists, maximizing their chances of spreading pollen. Our results document for the first time that plants can rapidly respond to pollinator sounds in an ecologically relevant way, write the researchers from Tel Aviv University in Israel. The scientists went into the experiment with a hypothesis in place that plants can indeed pick up the vibrations of sound waves and that this might be part of the reason many plants' flowers are bowl-shaped to better trap the sounds. Across several experiments involving more than 650 evening primrose flowers, nectar production was measured in response to silence, sound at three different frequency levels, and a recording of the buzzing noise made by bees. Sure enough, both the field recording of buzzing bees and the low-frequency sounds that closely matched the recording were enough to change the mix of the nectar in just three minutes' time. 
the silence and the high and mid-frequency sounds had no effect whatsoever. The team also tried the experiments with plants that had some flower petals removed. No change in nectar production was noted, indicating that it is indeed the flowers that have the job of being the ears. These lab tests were also backed up by observations made by the team in the wild. Plants have plenty of interactions with animals, and animals both make and hear noises, one of the team, Lilik Hadani, told E.D. Young at The Atlantic. It would be maladaptive for plants not to use sound for communication. We tried to make clear predictions to test, and were quite surprised that it worked out this well. Pushing out sweeter nectar means that bees may well stay feeding for longer, increasing the chances that they'll pick up pollen and also making it more likely that the insects will return to flowers of the same species in the future. This sweetness boost needs to be timed perfectly, though, to make it worth the flower's while, and that's exactly what seems to be happening. As yet, the work hasn't been peer-reviewed, and it's not clear precisely how the vibrations are being decoded and turned into a trigger for sweeter nectar production, but it's an intriguing first step into the study of how plants react to sounds around them. We've already seen past research into how plants respond to touch and daylight, and now we can add acoustic vibrations to the list. Next, the researchers want to look at how plants might respond to other sounds in animals, including humans. Some people may think, how can plants hear or smell? One of the study authors, Marine Vietz, told National Geographic, I'd like people to understand that hearing is not only for ears. The research has been published on the preprint server, BioRix. If this ain't the coolest, but simultaneously the creepiest thing that you've heard all day, then I don't know what you've been up to. Plants can hear, bruh. These plants heard the sound of bees' wings buzzing together. These plants heard the sound of bees buzzing and sweetened their nectar to attract the bees. This lady scientist talking about, I want you to consider that hearing is not just for the ears. Yo, what a quote. What a quote. That's on some deep level type stuff right there. Hearing is not just for the ears. We all laughed when M. Night Shyamalan made that movie starring Mark Wahlberg where you watch for two hours to figure out that after all, the villain the whole time has just been the trees. Spoiler alert. We laughed. We laughed at M. Night. Only to find out in the year of our Lord, 2021, that that movie starring Mark Wahlberg was a documentary. It was a documentary, my babies. Plants can hear. How am I supposed to go about cutting my grass tomorrow? I'm going to be thinking about that grass and what, is, what it is communicating to each other. Oh, he's coming. He's coming. He just sliced my whole family. Ah. Plants can hear. They can change their composition and their output based on what is going on around them because of what they hear. Makes me want to sit down and read The Given Tree all over again. I might go out and hug a tree. Apologize for my blatant brutality. And lack of care for nature. Because if not, they might just scoop me up in their big arms. 
or pelt me to death with acorns. Plants. I repeat, plants can hear. They hear you, bruh. They hear you. Plants can hear. And that is mind-blowing and terrifying. That's all for this week. You don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I can't either. It's back in the house and out of the shed for me. Thanks again for listening to episode 23. Make sure to subscribe, like, share, and review. It really does help. If you have any paranormal experiences, opinions about sports or politics that you'd like to share, you can email the show at intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. Again, that's intheshedwithwest at gmail.com. I might even read it on air. Look for us on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at InTheShed4. Tune in again next week when we'll hit the headlines, talk some college and NFL football, and investigate together whether the moon landing was indeed faked. This has been In the Shed with Wes Anderson, the best news show in the land covering politics, sports, and the paranormal. Have an adventurous and fulfilling weekend. I'll catch you tools later. Peace out, Boy Scout. Meemaw, we made it!